socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome, everybody, to episode 99. That is a nine-niner of You Don't Have to Yell. It is the Hulk to your Hogan, the Captain to your Crunch, the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here with another installment for those of us stuck between a Tucker and a Mad Out Place. Now, over the past few months, we have talked about a number of different topics, from the debt to the status of the U.S. dollar to our agricultural policy to the state of race in America and the political origin of all of these topics seems to lead back to one man, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Now, you all know that my belief is this decade is the closing parenthesis on the post-World War II era, and that really around the time Nixon took office was when that post-World War II architecture started to creak. And a lot of the decisions he made while in office set us on the trajectory we're on today. I figured it'd probably be good to ask someone who knew a thing or two about him to come on the show. So I invited Ken Hughes of the University of Virginia. He is one of the foremost experts on our 37th president. He has been lauded by Bob Woodward for his knowledge of Nixon's secret recordings, which is high praise from the guy who was partly responsible for having them revealed in the first place. And interestingly enough, in my conversation with Ken, I learned that the things that made me most curious about Nixon paled in comparison to how he used the Vietnam War to polarize the electorate and the impact that had over politics in the long term. I have a lot to say on the subject, but I'm going to leave it to the end. For now, listen to the smart man and learn. So Ken, before... I hit record, and while we were talking about this episode over email, I, I think I told you that over the course of this podcast, uh, Nixon has come up again and again and again, accidentally. We do a show on the national debt, Nixon plays a role. We do a show on the obesity epidemic, Nixon plays a role. He has effectively taken the blame for everything uh, <laughs> from the debt to like the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. And so I figured, well, let's find out a little bit about this Nixon guy. And that is what brought us here. And you know, it's funny because for all the reasons that I was curious about Nixon, None of them are actually the reasons that he's most well known, and none of them are, I think, are related to the to the to the bigger political issues that he was dealing with at the time. Because you know, my understanding is that the the all these things that were going on in America at the time were all overshadowed by the Vietnam War, effectively, right? Right, and. Um- but I want to first. I want to talk about how uh, right on your your perception is. Nixon is a very pivotal figure in lots of American politics and policy, and that was his design. That was his intention. He wanted to be a Republican Franklin Roosevelt. He wanted to put together a new Republican majority. 
uh, shift America from being a center-left country, which it had been since Franklin Roosevelt and through Truman and even Republican Eisenhower, and then again through Kennedy and Johnson, into a center-right uh, country, which it was for the rest of the Cold War. And uh, your listeners can also uh, attest that it has been off and on since the, the end of the Cold War as well. And so we're very much in what David Greenberg calls Nixon's shadow uh, because he was so successful at reshaping American politics um, with regard to everything. And, you know, you mentioned like the obesity epidemic and like drug laws. I mean, just yeah. like, you know, every, everywhere you look, there's Nixon. Tell me a little bit about myself. I was born in 64. So Richard Nixon was the very first president I noticed. Okay. And it was a very strange thing to become aware of the outside world. I entered kindergarten in 69, which was the year mm -hmm. that he entered the White House. Um, and like the first thing, the first political issue I heard of was the Vietnam War, utterly baffling to a child. And mm -hmm. there was Nixon's landslide reelection. And then there was Watergate, which was incredibly complex. But, uh, you know, at, at a very young age, I saw this big churn in American politics. So I was always fascinated by Nixon. And uh, when I reached adulthood, and well, actually long after I reached adulthood, the U.S. government started declassifying his tapes. As everybody knows, Richard Nixon had a, a voice-activated recording system in the White House. So for 30 months, he made this almost perfect record of his presidency. You can just hear everything he says in the Oval Office and a few other White House area locations, presidential locations. And so we get the, the best, closest look at a presidency we've ever had. And so I found that fascinating being, you know, I'd always loved history, but history, as you know, is as told to. That's yeah. what history basically is what people say happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, but with the Nixon tapes, history is what actually happened in the Oval Office. That's not all of history. Uh, a lot of people would argue that's not even the most important part of history. The impact that he had on people around the world is a much greater part of history and, and more important. But even that, I think, is easier to understand once we get to hear Nixon on the job. Why did he do that? Like, or, or, you know, as far as the recordings go, you know, for, for who Nixon was and the way he did business, yes. why did he get it all on audio? In retrospect, it seems like a dumb thing. Yeah. But um, Nixon was not the first president to record his meetings. He was probably the last because he lost <laughs> his job as a result of it. Yeah. But Johnson recorded, I think, 800 hours of his telephone conversations and of his meetings in 1968, uh, which were largely about Vietnam. And John F. Kennedy, I think, recorded 260 hours of phone and, and meeting conversations. Um, it's hard after Nixon to put yourself back in the mindset of the Cold War, the early, you know, the first 15 years of the Cold War. Um, presidents were given an extraordinary amount of discretion and deference. Um, and at the time, presidents owned all their presidential papers. 
after Nixon, Congress passed a law saying that every scrap of paper in the White House and every recording belongs to you and me, belongs to the American people and has to be preserved and turned over to the National Archives. Um, before, for most of the history of our country, president left office and took every piece of paper that had anything to do with his administration. And they defined tapes as, as part of that. And all the presidents before Nixon were able to keep their taping secret. So Nixon, like, like Johnson and Kennedy and Eisenhower a bit, um, thought that they could have a nice perfect record of what they had said in certain key meetings for this predecessors, for Nixon, everything. Um, and they could use that whenever somebody said, well, I talked to the president and he said this, mm -hmm. and the president wanted to say, no, I didn't say that. Um, so Nixon was basically protecting himself by starting to tape. And the reason that it was a voice activated rather than a on switch, off switch kind of system was that uh, Nixon's aides knew he was clumsy. <laughs> Okay. And like he'd 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 want to order coffee and he'd wind up summoning summoning HR Haldeman because he pushed the wrong button. Yeah. Um, and they were just tired of that. So they said, We're not going to give you any buttons. Uh just whenever you talk, the tape goes on. And whenever you make a phone call, you record. Yeah, with the nuclear issue being so big back then, it's surprising <laughs> that skill with buttons wasn't a prerequisite. Um, yeah, if, if there were a real nuclear button, Nixon would have started World War III while trying <laughs> to summon his valet. Thankfully, the button is metaphorical. Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting, too, because you talk about how Nixon seemed so intentional in his approach and how he had this 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 real desire to have an impact, which I think arguably he really did on uh, the Republican Party and American politics. But the interesting thing is that he he almost inherited a, a lot of the issues he had to deal with. So he inherited the civil rights movement. He inherited Vietnam. Um, do you get the sense that he went into the presidency? knowing what he was going to do in a sense. I mean, everybody goes prepared, but, but did you get, did you, did you get a sense that Nixon went into the white house with an intention of maybe conducting the Vietnam war differently than, than think, Johnson had? I think Nixon hoped that he could frighten the North Vietnamese into making a better settlement than they had to. Specifically, he hoped that he would give them the impression that he was kind of a madman and that he would go much farther than Johnson ever went. And he even um, tried to get them to be afraid that he might uh, use nuclear weapons. Um, but none of that worked. He tried that all in his first year in 1969. And, uh, Nothing worked because at that, well, it was never going to work because the North Vietnamese had basic strategic advantages that we could just never overcome. Mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to leave eventually. They wanted to stay mm -hmm. <laughs> always. Um, we could make incursions into the Ho Chi Minh Trail, their supplies line that they used to get soldiers and and war materials into the South, and that ran through the border area 
mm -hmm. uh, with Laos and Cambodia. We could send troops in there, we could bomb there, but would eventually we'd want to take our troops out and we, you know, we want to come home and then they could just resume using it. Um, and the, the biggest strategic disadvantage we had was that the South Vietnamese government was made from the remains of the French colonial government that uh, was made, it was staffed by the Vietnamese who had worked with the French, the French colonial government that exploited the majority of the Vietnamese people. So we basically tried to make a democratic government out of colonial, and this is a harsh word, but you know, they were, they were viewed as lackeys, as, uh, as country sellers uh, in, in, to the rest of the Vietnamese. And they were never really committed to democracy. So for this, you know, starting with Eisenhower in 1954, we said, okay, we're going to try to make South Vietnam into a democracy. And it never looked like it was going to work very well. It never did work very well, though our government didn't tell the American people how badly it was going. Um, and it, it held together reasonably well for as long as Ho Chi Minh and the North Vietnamese government were just trying to consolidate their power in the North and not really concerned about the South. But eventually the South Vietnamese government, by trying to uh, crush all opposition, um, not just the, the Viet Cong, they, they were, they're called the Viet Minh at the time, um, not just the communist opposition, but even their anti-communist competition. Um, so we, we, we basically sided with the group of people who had already lost the war when it was a, an anti-colonial war against the French. And so Nixon in 1969 realizes he cannot win this war. And uh, he comes up with the next best thing to do. And that's a decent interval exit strategy. He is going to stay in Vietnam long enough with American troops long enough to guarantee that Saigon will not fall before the 1972 election. He knows if he loses the war before the 1972 election, he's going to lose the election because he had promised peace with honor and whatever peace with honor meant, it did not mean defeat. Um, so he had to come up with a way of convincing people, the American people, that staying there for more years was worth it. And so he, so he sold them Vietnamization, which was the idea that if we train the South Vietnamese army, that will make it strong enough to, for South Vietnam to survive on its own. Nixon knew that wasn't the case. Um, in the very beginning of his administration, he asked uh, the Pentagon, the CIA, the State Department, um, at what, how long will it take before the South Vietnamese army will be able to defend South Vietnam all by itself? And the answer came back, it will not be able to survive without American troops for the foreseeable future. The answer was never. So when Nixon says to the American people, you know, as, as the South Vietnamese step up, we'll stand down, 
uh, the stronger they come, the stronger we make them, the sooner we can come home. It was deceitful. He was basically keeping U.S. troops in there for all four years of his first term because that was the only way to keep South Vietnam from collapsing before Election Day. Mm, and so that was and that added 20,000 American casualties to the war and uncounted more Vietnamese, both North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese, both are adversaries and are allies. So as far as I'm concerned, that was the worst thing Nixon did. What I'm hearing is really that you know, Nixon got in, knew the war was unwinnable, and yet decided to keep putting Americans in danger for the sake of his own political ambition. Um, that is it. Yeah, the the you know, and you mentioned how this factors heavily into the election, and I think nowadays, you know, I don't know how. I mean, what have we gone through? Four elections where we've been at war so yeah. far, roughly. Maybe I won't. I won't do the counting now. But um, and and it almost seems like like it just kind of fades into the backdrop nowadays. Um, but back then, you know, Vietnam seemed to be the key. You know, the key issue. And you know, in terms of how the electorate was divided on it, yes, was it was it like today, where your position on Vietnam sort of dictated everything else, or? Or, or, or was it was it a case where there was broad sort of bipartisan opposition to the war? Um, it went and, through different phases. Yeah, and and the the remarkable thing is how much it changed. If you're asking about like 1965 and 66, as mm-hmm. Johnson first sends in the troops, there is great bipartisan support for that because. Americans had not let, lost faith in their government because of the mm-hmm. Vietnam War. <laughs> they yeah. thought, you know, if the president tells us this is an important country to protect, uh, then we we had better protect it. And uh, the disconnect between the presidential rhetoric about the war and the actual conduct of the war only became more apparent as time went on, and it became clear. Um, and we saw this later with the Iraq war and with the Afghanistan war. Once it becomes clear that there's no strategy to actually succeed, there's no way to win the war, um, the American people become extremely reluctant and understandably so to send children to die in a cause that will ultimately fail. Um, so, when Nixon took office in 69, already you had a majority saying the war was a mistake. But our politicians were not saying, we're not leveling with the public and saying, look, we don't actually have a way to win this. Um, Our choices are to stay in there forever, and that, that will keep South Vietnam from falling, or to withdraw, and eventually the communists will take over. What Nixon does is claim that Vietnamization and negotiations will produce peace with honor, will result in a, in a result that is not defeat. Vietnamization would be effectively letting the Vietnamese take over, correct? Yes. That was, I'm okay. sorry. I should, have, I should have said that. That was the training program 
for the okay. South Vietnamese army. That would have the Vietnamese take over the war. Yeah. And negotiations uh, were supposed to produce a deal that uh, in which the North Vietnamese would agree to respect South Vietnam's right to self-determination. So Nixon is claiming that everybody who does not support his policy is in effect losing the war that you know the war the war is not going badly because he not be, it's not because he lacks a strategy to succeed it's because not enough american of the american people are supporting his strategy so he turns support for him into support for america and equates the two um and it's really it's a it's a very sinister thing to do because most Americans, I mean, like conservative Republican Americans included, really doubted Vietnamization would work. I mean, if the if the South Vietnamese could be trained to uh, take over their own defense, why didn't the training under the Kennedy administration, which had sent advisors, <laughs> and under the Johnson administration, produced success? Um, but on the other hand, Nixon gave people a way to tell themselves, I'm, I'm avoiding defeat if I support the president. I don't have to admit that I supported a war that got thousands of Americans killed and thousands more Asians killed um, because I made a mistake. It gave, he gave the people who wanted to avoid taking blame for the war, uh, someone else to blame, and they could blame the the anti-war demonstrators on the streets. And Nixon really uh, directed a lot of anger and hatred against them. And they could blame the Democrats in Congress, who, once Nixon took office, started introducing bills to set a deadline for Nixon to withdraw the troops. Um, now, in reality, the the choice America faced was, do we get out now and save lives, but lose the war? Or do we get out later after sacrificing more lives and still lose the war? But Nixon said, no, the, the choice is you can get out now and all the sacrifices we have made were in vain because you gave up and didn't give us a chance to win. Or you can follow my strategy, uh, wait until I say the Vietnamese are strong enough to defend themselves until I, and until I say that I have a deal with the North Vietnamese and they're going to respect South Vietnam's right to self-government. And then we can leave in, in victory, uh, having, having won everything that we fought for. I'm thinking back to what you said about Nixon keeping America in the war in Vietnam until election, until the election, so he could win re-election. Do you get a sense that Nixon saw the war in Vietnam as serving some strategic purpose, or was or or was it more a very useful political purpose for him, or both? That's a great question because while politics were the most important part of it to Nixon, they weren't the only important part of it. Um, he often talks in private about maintaining American credibility. 
Um, he knows, obviously, losing a war is not going to do America good in the world. Uh, the question is whether continuing a war that we can't win does more damage or less than, than losing the war. Um, Nixon thinks that getting a face-saving exit uh, will in some way preserve American credibility. But at the same time, in order to get the negotiated settlement with the North that he wants, he's having Henry Kissinger say to the leaders of the Soviet Union in Moscow uh, and the leaders of China in Beijing, look, it, if the North Vietnamese hold off for a year or two after Nixon brings home the last troops, they can take over and America will not interfere. So the question becomes, I mean, he's letting Moscow and Beijing know that he's okay with losing the war as long as it happens a year or two after he takes home the troop, brings home the troops, so he can avoid the blame for it. As long as it doesn't look like it's his fault that Saigon is falling. So when he's talking about maintaining credibility, he sort of he has he has sacrificed it with our adversaries because the communists know it, it, what what Nixon's up to. They know he's just trying to arrange the appearance of success in Vietnam, while not you know, while recognizing privately that he'll never have the reality of it. He's merely delaying the day of defeat so that he'll be able to blame somebody else for it when it happens. So the question becomes who's, who he's, he's preserving credibility with. And my view is he's preserving it mainly with American voters because there is, there is a majority in America that wants to believe that it didn't make a horrible mistake by supporting the war in Vietnam. And it wants a scapegoat, too, to blame for the defeat that most people really do see is coming, but they don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to take responsibility for it because, you know, it, it's, a, it's hard to recall. We, you know, we've, we've had the two long wars that you mentioned, the ones in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, but they, there was a much smaller American presence there. And those wars didn't really dominate the news um, after the Bush administration. Um, Vietnam, there, because the casualties continued so high for most of the years of the war, uh, sometimes hundreds in a week, uh, often dozens in a week. Uh, and it just, it really called into question, you know, how, how we could have gotten involved in such a mess um, people were just very, they, people wanted to turn away from it and wanted to have someone they could, they could handily blame for everything that went wrong there. Mm -hmm. When what really went wrong was that we went, got into a war that we didn't have to fight and we never had a way to win. There's a couple directions I could, I could go in here. And I, I think you, know, one question I have 
as far as relating this to modern day wars is you mentioned Afghanistan and Iraq, certainly during the, the Bush administration received a lot more coverage. Once he left, they were viewed as inherited wars. Nixon, for his part, was in an inherited war. So Nixon didn't start Vietnam. Um, he didn't bring it to the level it was at when he took office, um, but he was left to, to, to end the problem. Um, did that have an impact on how future presidents and maybe how the military conducted wars, but also discussed wars with the public? Because I, I feel like one of the big differences with Vietnam, aside from the fact there was a draft, was also the fact that the military wasn't necessarily as savvy with broadcast media as they were in you know in 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 the earlier part of this century and and was some of that learned from the experience in vietnam i think so uh, vietnam affected uh the way politicians handled wars and the way the military handled them um with politicians i i think unfortunately what everybody learned was the most important thing to do is to avoid the blame for losing the war uh nixon effectively saddled the democratic congressman the democratic congress with american defeat uh in the vietnam war and that's an extraordinary story all by itself because nixon actually invited the congress to prohibit him from using American force in Vietnam after 1973. Um, I tell that story in my book, Fatal Politics, and it's, it's a really strange story because the, the story that's come down is that the Democrats finally were able to tie Nixon's hands. Um, and the Democrats actually told that story because a lot of them were proud of it. George McGovern, who was the 1972 presidential nominee, said it was the happiest day of his life when he could pass the resolution saying that the president could not use American force in or around or above Indochina. Um, but people forgot to ask, why did Nixon ask Congress to do that? <laughs> and the answer was that there was no way for Nixon to preserve South Vietnam. And it gave him a way to blame Congress to say, look, you know, I, I, I tried, but these guys just just wouldn't, you know, I lost support in the Congress due to Watergate. And after that, I couldn't do anything to help South Vietnam. Um, when the truth was that anything he could have done wouldn't have worked. I mean, even if he had sent American bombers into North Vietnam uh, in 74 or 75, that was not nearly enough uh, military firepower to stop the North Vietnamese from taking over the South. And so what Nixon basically did was avoid uh, overtly losing the war um, by just you know, getting Congress to say he couldn't take any more any more part in it. Uh, the the military learned some valuable lessons from Vietnam, uh, which 
the Reagan administration actually put it into effect. Reagan had the most bellicose reputation of any president of the Cold War. Um, anyone from from Truman to George H. W. Bush, Reagan was his public image was this was the biggest hawk in America. But Casper um, Weinberger and Colin Powell. Uh, they they basically said we're not going into any war unless we've got full american support we know how we're going to get out of it and we can go in with overwhelming military force to achieve victory quickly because one of the things the military decided was that the the problem with the vietnam war is that it went on too long the longer it went on the less support the war had um, so at the end of the Cold War, there was this, this strong in institutional memory in the Pentagon that um, America could lose a war if it went into a war with a bad strategy. So we only go into any military conflict that we know <laughs> we have a specific objective, we know we can achieve it, we achieve it with overwhelming force, and we get out. Uh, and that was the that was criticized as Vietnam syndrome by people who thought that we should be more interventionist. And uh, that debate continued through the Clinton years, the first, the first presidency that existed after the Cold War. And um, unfortunately, when George W. Bush took office, he was surrounded by people who thought who who believed the the myth that Nixon propagated about the Vietnam War, who thought that the only reason we lost the Vietnam War was that uh, we gave up before uh, you know we we before we could have won, and that was the that was the stabbed in the back myth that Richard Nixon uh, sold to his supporters and maybe to even a majority of the of the public. And um, but it was completely misleading. He never he never came close to winning the war. He just ruthlessly arranged it so that defeat would come too late for anyone to hold him accountable for it. And uh, that he was extremely successful. So you get people like uh, Donald Rumsfeld and George W. Bush and and I say some veterans of the Nixon administration who think that. Um, we can't lose in Iraq. <laughs> we invade Iraq and we just, uh, you know, stick with it till we've till we get the job done. Uh, we will we will do what we should have done in South Vietnam, which was create a, a democratic government. And you know, it looked at first like they could succeed. I mean, obviously, the the Iraq War went very well in the first year. Uh, they, the U.S. military overthrew Saddam Hussein very quickly. Um, and took control of the country fairly quickly. But we learned again that being the dominant military force in a country is not the same as having the allegiance of the people of that country. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, more Iraqis hated us after we overthrew Saddam Hussein than uh, before the invasion. 40% folks, that's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% 
is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition, and in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. The American Revolution teaches you all you need to know about fighting a war on foreign soil, which is eventually you have to go home. So all, all, the, all the natives have to do is not leave and right. not lose, and they're, and they're good. You know, the, the interesting thing I'm hearing, too, as we're talking and as you're kind of tying this thread between Nixon and then you know, the, the, the current wars that are, are winding down is that n- the echoes of Nixon seem to reverberate in the Republican Party in the decades that followed and specifically um, painting the Democratic Party as, you know, weak on foreign policy, um, painting them as weak on crime. Those were, I think those were two of Nixon's biggest um you know, I think those were were two of Nixon's biggest focuses as a candidate, um, and and at the same time, what what I've noticed and what I've learned of Nixon is that that was almost that almost seems like window dressing in a way to what he really wanted to accomplish from on on American soil, because it does seem like that whole movement towards uh, allowing the free market to take on roles that had previously been assumed to be the role of government was it was a big focus of his um so I, you know I, I don't know how you feel about that like you know do, do you feel like in a lot of ways you know the vietnam war and even we'll take you know the war on drugs as well just to lump that in was that all just a nice vehicle of distraction to get a base of people ginned up and to get a base of people behind him so he could do a lot of other things that maybe people were less interested in, but were equally important um, while in the white house. Well, you you make a good distinction between Nixon's politics and Nixon's policies. Uh, So I want to start with the politics. Um, Nixon, like our current uh, crop of authoritarian leaders, understood the importance of an enemy. Uh, Authoritarians 
win power by saying to the people, your problems come from this group and I can, by cracking down on that group, solve your problems. So Nixon had law and order, which was not, which the federal government didn't have a whole lot to do with uh, when he took office. Um, but he was able to say, he was able to, to tell a story that crime was going up because of liberalism, because of liberal court justices making liberal rulings, protecting the rights of criminals. And um, liberal social policies focusing on what they call the root causes of criminality, uh, poverty, racism, uh, rather than on punishment. So Nixon was able to cast himself as tough by saying, you know, I am for um, enforcing the law and going taking further measures to enforce the law to increase punishments to stop permissiveness in our society and in that way he he, he was able to present himself as the person uh protecting americans from the rising crime rate though the crime rate continued to rise while he was while he was president and that that same approach to politics is how he how he tells the story of the Vietnam War. Um, I am the one who is going to protect America from the communists. And the only way you can do that is by being tough with them. Uh, and he did various uh, escalations of the war surges of military force throughout his his first term uh, to give credence to that story. Um, of course, it, the substance of it was not being tough leads to victory. The substance of it was uh, escalating the violence periodically delays defeat until after Nixon's reelected. Um, so so there is a the politics and the policy disconnect. Um, I think as far I'm not I'm not very well versed in Nixon's domestic policies, but his instincts were all conservative um, and their his policies were they were they were not really like ronald reagan's policies which very much favored the free market but um they were moving in that direction he he wanted to cut back government social welfare programs and he trimmed them some and uh he wanted to increase volunteerism to to basically popularize the idea that Americans should volunteer voluntarily solve uh, social problems through their through community action on a on a one on one basis. Um, and that was Pat Nixon's particular project, uh, just as you know, Lady Bird Johnson had uh, beautification and um, other first ladies had their own projects. So I think as far as domestic policy and uh, deregulation and, uh, and taking a more free market approach goes, Nixon was more of a transitional figure. Mm -hmm. uh, that's better, yeah. as good as I can give you. 
Yeah, I, I guess so the the other question I have on uh, kind of building on the whole how he capitalized on the rise in crime rate or how he capitalized on Vietnam, I, I think it's very difficult for anyone born after the Cold War to understand what real threats they were. So today in the United States, you know, our cities are relatively safe. Um, there isn't a uh, there isn't a, a a large military power that opposes us that can uh, meaningfully do damage, and and those two things weren't true, you know, during the Cold War. They certainly weren't true were true in the seventies. I mean, uh, the our our cities had become and and remained fairly dangerous through the nineteen eighties. Again, relatively speaking, or maybe even through the nineties, um, the the Soviet Union was a real military threat. So, you know, in in what sense was Nixon right on that, or in what sense were his instincts right in trying to galvanize uh, Americans against these two threats? The the reason Nixon was so effective was that the uh, the Soviet Union was a real threat. Um, the problem was is that politicians learned that if they could if they were blamed for any setback in the Cold War, they'd lose their jobs. And that could, that goes back to the start of the Cold War. Um, in nineteen forty six, Republicans were blaming the Roosevelt and Truman administrations for the loss of Eastern Europe because the Soviet Union dominated Eastern Europe uh, from the end of World War II to the end of the Cold War. Um, they, you know, they put up their own pro-communist governments in uh, or the Eastern European nations. Now, the Democrats could make a very strong argument that there was nothing they could do about that. Uh, the only way to they could fight that was by like once they finished the war with the Germans, go to war with the Russians. <laughs> but we forget the Russians were like a conventionally superior force in Europe. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the Russians did more to defeat the Nazi army mm -hmm. uh, than our Western European allies and us, they suffered more, many, many more casualties and inflicted more casualties. So like the idea that we could, you know, could have gone right to war with Russia uh, doesn't really hold up. But when it comes election time and you're, you're, you have two candidates and one says, look, <laughs> Our best is just not good enough. We have to accept that the Soviets are going to dominate Eastern Europe. And the other says, it's because my opponents were weak and short-sighted, and they just let Joseph Stalin get away with this, that your relatives and mine in the old country are now uh, being brutally oppressed uh, and, and, you know, enslaved nations that's that other argument sounds pretty good i mean it's 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 nicer to think that you know we could have done something to change it and if we're just tougher we can we can manage and you know the democrats under harry truman and you know his secretary of state was george marshall they were they were plenty tough 
Um, and the Republicans never really found a way to, to roll back the Soviet domination of Eastern Europe until Mikhail Gorbachev decided to dissolve uh, the Soviet empire. Um, but the, but uh, politically it worked. And the same thing happened when China went communist a few years later. Uh, the Democrats were still in power then. And George Marshall said, look, there was no way we could keep the nationalist anti-communist government in China going. It just wasn't strong enough. Uh, we, we tried everything. We gave them all the aid we could. Um, and there was no point to, to doing more. There, there, was no, there was no way we could prevent it. And the Republicans said, no, it, it's, it was the defeatist attitude of the State Department. That's why. That's why China uh, went communist. We gave up on our friends. And historically, that's not a good argument. But politically, it works at the time. So um, a real key figure that we forget in, in making like the third world a competitive area for, in domestic politics and for foreign policy is John Kennedy in 1960, because he saddles Eisenhower and Nixon with losing Cuba <laughs> to the communists. Oh. Um, he makes a tremendous campaign issue about how a Marxist dictator has risen 90 miles off our shores and the Republicans did nothing. He does this big turnabout. Wow. Um, he does to, to Eisenhower and Nixon with, on Cuba what the Republicans did to Democrats on, on China. And um, it works. <laughs> I mean, it was a very, as you know, it was the closest election of the 20th century to that point. And that wasn't the only thing he did. Kennedy was also the missile gap candidate who you, you, you got to watch some of his speeches from then uh, in which he talks about how in a few years, the Soviets are going to have a first strike capability. They'll be able to launch a nuclear war against us and we will be able to retaliate. And he makes really, really alarming speeches that turn out to be entirely untrue. When he becomes president, he finds out that there is a real missile gap, but we have like 20 times as many nuclear missiles as that. Yeah. And so, yeah, he does. He's he he runs this incredible hawk campaign. Uh -huh. um, and that's why even in 1960, he's running against peace and prosperity. The 50s have been rather good under yeah. Eisenhower. Uh, yeah. uh, the American economy has done fairly well. Not it. It had, it had sunk into recession shortly before the 60 election, but not too bad. And, uh, you know, Eisenhower wrapped up uh, the, the war in Korea with a stalemate, but that was satisfactory and uh, managed to stay out of other wars. He, and, you know, was actually also very effective at covert operations that eventually turned out to have been bad ideas, but didn't look like that at the time. Like he succeeded in overthrowing the government of Iran, which eventually leads to the backlash that brings the uh, Ayatollah to, to power in the 70s. But in the 1950s, it just looks like a success story. You know, we got rid of this leftist and replaced him with the Shah of Iran. If you're looking post-World War II presidents, right, and we're going, you know, you look at, you have, you have Kennedy. Well, let's call it Truman. You have Truman, and then you have Kennedy. 
And then you have Johnson. And then you have McGovern. You know, then something something happens. Mm-hmm. So, and, 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 and this is as much a question about the Democratic Party, I think, as it is about, about Nixon. But what happens where all of a sudden the Democrats lose that cudgel, that ability to beat defeatism uh, over the head of the Republican incumbent? Um, it, it only had it for a short time. The Democrats had it under JFK because he took that Hey, he, he just turned it about on the Republicans said, no, these Eisenhower is the guy who's leaving us vulnerable to communism 90 miles off our shore and and nuclear annihilation. Um, and those attacks, though, in retrospect, they do not seem I mean, obviously, the missile gap didn't even exist. And Castro never was that big a threat. Um, the political effectiveness of those attacks uh gave kennedy his very strong uh image before he was elected in 1960 and uh johnson was determined to keep that he he knew that if he lost vietnam that the political backlash against him would be tremendous and kennedy knew that as well and i think that was part of kennedy's reasons for sending in advisors, increasing the number of advisors there that we had there from 600 to 16,000 and uh, introducing U.S. helicopters to the war zone to transport South Vietnamese troops to battle areas uh, and basically starting without acknowledging a, a an American war uh, was because JFK and LBJ knew that to be saddled with losing Vietnam would crush the Democratic Party the way that um, being saddled with losing China had hurt so much uh, in the 1950s. Um, What happens though, the civil rights movement happens so that the conservative to reactionary racist South that had previously been solidly democratic uh, starts breaking away from the Democratic Party in 1968 when I think five states vote, five states of the old Confederacy vote for George Wallace, who was running an independent campaign, and to then really break away, as you say, in 1972 when McGovern is the nominee and uh, all states but one go for Nixon because Nixon has successfully cast McGovern as the the candidate of defeat. Um, And Nixon was successful in doing that uh, dishonestly. I mean, Nixon's own policies were going to lead to defeat, but Nixon, not only did Nixon convince people that he would never let South Vietnam fall. George McGovern actually, as a candidate, insisted that Nixon would never let South Vietnam fall and that if America reelected him, that it would be four more years of Vietnam, of the Vietnam War. Uh, so in a way, McGovern, by attacking Nixon, by saying he's not really trying to get out of Vietnam, actually made Nixon's case for him. 
because you had the candidates of both major parties saying that Nixon would never accept defeat in Vietnam. And that sounded good to a majority of Americans. So McGovern, I think, was an even more catastrophic candidate than people realized at the time. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, everybody's, everybody knows like the colossal mistakes he made. Um, but one of the, the biggest thing he did was, I think, solidify Nixon's reputation as a hardcore anti-communist who could never accept a defeat in South Vietnam. Even yeah. while Henry Kissinger was quietly in, in secret meetings and closed door meetings with communist leaders saying, we're accepting communism in China. We can accept it in Vietnam. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're, we're, we're opening the door to, to, to you guys in Beijing. What, what difference does Vietnam make to us at this point? It, it's, it's odd. I, I feel like, you know, from all I've heard, I feel like Nixon really forced the electorate to make a decision. You know, because if you look at the political parties back in, you know, the 1960s and, and 1950s, the, 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 the debate or the, the criticism was that they were too similar. So and, and there's actually a political paper that uh, in, I think, the 1950s, there's a there's a, there's a political paper that effectively says that the inability for Americans to distinguish the two major parties from each other will lead to them voting for extreme candidates. Hmm. And of course, we made them different and look what happened. But um, but it almost seems like Nixon is that inflection point. And Nixon is that point when you lined up on one side of Nixon or the other. And and that division seems to persist today, seems to like it, it runs through every election and, and runs through the definition of both parties, um, probably let's let's say you know at least up until clinton what are, what what are your thoughts there nixon believed in what he called positive polarization mm -hmm. and uh it was basically polarizing the majority that he could convince the majority that wanted to believe that it could come out of vietnam having not failed having mm -hmm. not suffered America's first defeat in war, having not simply hurt itself very badly. Yeah. Um, and polarizing them against a minority that said, there's no way this is going to work. We have no way to win this war. We mm -hmm. can't win this war. And all we're doing is prolonging the suffering. So when that point, Nixon was able to polarize a large majority yeah. against uh, the anti-war movement, which was viewed as radical and which Nixon successfully painted as anti-American uh, because he was able to convince people who wanted to believe that they could somehow come up with some successful way to end mm -hmm. the Vietnam War without losing, um, that, that he had come up with such a, such a way of doing it. Um, at the same time, Nixon wanted uh, an enormous coalition. He, he, he wanted a Republican country by majority. Mm -hmm. So his, while politically he was polarizing and divisive, uh, policy-wise, he was 
more moderate in order to attract democratic voters who he could appeal to on things like the cultural issues, law and order, and yeah. uh, the foreign policy, like the Vietnam War. So well, he, he founded he the EPA, to, for example. You know. Right. There, there was yeah. that. And he was also able to attract union uh, members, white blue collar workers in very, very large numbers who were conservative on foreign policy and uh, who were, you know, scared of crime. And so they they found some comfort in his law and order message. So while his politics were polarizing, you know, it was very us versus them. He his policies tried to expand the definition of us to include uh, traditional democratic constituencies like people with high paying union jobs. So like he did wage and price controls, which helped I mean which temporarily helped uh, consumers across the board because it put check on inflation for a short time uh, before you know the the contradictions of wage and price controls uh, started emerging. Um, it's, that's different from now in which like the we've got one the political elite elite of the Republican Party is is getting you know is sort of losing interest in democracy. It has figured out that it can preserve power without winning a majority. And that is, uh, and that the politics, the casting various groups as scapegoats, you know, uh, turning Black Lives Matter from a protest movement into an imaginary insurrection, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, that though that those kind of politics can keep Republicans in power in a lot of places and sometimes leads to the Republicans being in charge of the entire federal government, you know, the, the Congress, the White House and the court system. So that's a that's a very different approach from from Nixon, who is always who is always trying to make a larger majority. Um, as opposed to just holding on to office. I think the one the one thing that that Nixon lacked that I think today's uh, today's politicians have to their advantage, if you want to call it that, is there was is there was not the same geographic distribution uh, by party. So it was still it was still feasible for uh, a Republican to win in the Northeast as it was for a uh, Democrat to win in the South. And I mean, if you take a look at, you know, Reagan's reelection, reelection in 84, or you take a look at Bill Clinton's reelection in 96, you'll see that play out. And and I, I wonder if Richard Nixon were around today, you know, would he being the, the person he is, you know, would he look for that big coalition or would he understand that the electoral map is drawn in such a way where he just has to appeal to segments here and there and win? I don't know. It's hard for me to think of of what Nixon would advise today. Yeah, um, he would certainly relish the partisan warfare, <laughs> the 
create the casting of uh, political critics and adversaries as enemies yeah. and threats to the nation. Uh, he'd certainly be into that. He would love the Republican media landscape. Um, but um, yeah, I can't really, it, it, it's hard for me to think of because Nixon's ambition was so towering. Yeah. You know, um, he, he wanted to have such a great impact on the country yeah. and he did that uh, it's, hard, it's just hard for me to picture him, you know, demanding a recount in, our, in a county in Arizona. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, he, that wasn't how he played. But, you know, it does it does lead up to my my last question, which I'll 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 break into two parts, which is um, you, you you mentioned how you know Nixon came in with this ambition. Nixon came in with this desire to not just reshape the Republican Party, but reshape America into a center right nation. Um, and, and we've also talked a bit about how his how his how, his, you know, his how his strategy really like plays out until in, into politics today. Um, do you feel he achieved the goals he intended to achieve? And are those goals part of his legacy? Are those goals part of his legacy that still exists today? Or are there other things that he did that were outside of that set of goals that had a bigger impact on America? I think he, he did achieve it, and uh, he achieved it masterfully. The, um, the change in American politics from before his presidency to after his presidency. Um, before Nixon, uh, there was only one, it, it, the, like the story of, of presidents before him, FDR, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy Johnson, there was only one Republican. And he had to very much, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, he very much had to adopt the Democratic agenda because it was that center left country. Uh, after Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, there is only one Democratic president, uh, Jimmy Carter. And he very much had to adopt. Um, conservative Republican initiatives like uh, deregulation and uh, increasing um, the military budget. And that is a tribute to Nixon's creation of the new Republican majority. Uh, he, he very much succeeded in creating and activating uh, a right of center coalition that dominated the presidency for the rest of the Cold War. And he set uh, sort of a template for politicians, uh, for Republican politicians, up to um, George W. Bush. Um, Trump was a departure because he just, he only knew how to do the polarizing. <laughs> yes. Um, he, I don't know if you ever watched like an old interview with Nixon when he was mm -hmm. sitting down with uh, uh, anchor American anchorman um, or read a long interview with him in a newspaper. 
he would come across as the most centrist and masterfully detail-oriented big picture guy in the country. I mean, even to me, who I've not listened to hundreds of hours of him in private, revealing, venting his his animosities. Um, he just sounds like exactly the kind of person you want president. Uh, he he studied the role his entire life and played the part um, to the greatest and actually thought self-restraint was part of the job. Like Nixon was consciously racist. He, he thought that African-Americans were intellectually inferior, um, but he also thought he should never say that in public. And there's a, you know, he talks about it in private with Daniel Patrick Moynihan, just says, you know, we should never ever suggest that because um, it's a land of opportunity. And uh, even he, from his racist perspective, knew that there were outstanding, excellent uh, Black people who could excel and succeed. And he didn't ever want the President of the United States to be the sort of person who put a damper on that, who who was discouraging in any way. Um, so I think someone like Donald Trump would just fall beneath his standards for what a Republican could and, and, and should be. But um, nonetheless, his, his particular approach toward politics of defining an enemy as a threat to America, uh, to American physical safety to, from, you know, with regard to crime and the law and order issue, uh, America's national security with regard to the to the cold war and and saying you know my opponents are the ones who are leaving us open to this threat uh in that way the the donald trumps and the and the trump-like politicians are, are very much the the inheritors of nixon's political tradition yeah yeah i mean i think what i what i admire about nixon was how masterful of a politician he was. Uh, there's not on the policy side. Um, there's <laughs> there's not a ton I agree with, but uh, on on his understanding of the American electorate and on his ability to uh, his ability to manipulate it, I think I, I I would agree. I think there's 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 no one better. Um, Trump certainly was fantastic on the polarizing side and fantastic on, on again, making people make a decision, um, but was no, did, did not come anywhere near Nixon in terms of, you know, policy uh, acumen. I, I feel like we should have booked like three hours for this. <laughs> this guy, it's like talking about Nixon. It's like one of those little Russian dolls and you just open up one and there's another and another and another and mm -hmm. another. So we may have to pick up this discussion again, but I appreciate you taking the time to talk, Ken. This has been really interesting. It's been great. Uh, thank you so much. If you would like to learn more, Ken has a book out called Fatal Politics. You can find it on Amazon.com, and I'll also have a link in the show notes on YDHTY.com. Just click on the link that says Episodes in the upper right-hand corner, and you shall find it. Now, if you like this episode, please share with all your friends, neighbors, and enemies. And if you have not subscribed yet, now is your invitation to do so. Jump on board this crazy train. We need more people just like you. 
Now, what I found most interesting in this conversation was the way the Vietnam War was really more important in terms of its usefulness in winning the election, but was secondary to Nixon's greater policy goals. And a lot of what he did domestically moved us towards the small government, privatized focused policies of the 80s and 90s. And Vietnam was really more of a rallying point for the people who would vote for him and give him permission to enact these policies. And I have an episode teed up for July that touches on this on a more theoretical level. But here's the gist. American democracy is, in many ways, ruling by misdirection. Public sentiment around hot-button issues, whether it's Vietnam, guns, immigration, whatever, left twicks, right twicks, is really just a vehicle to be given the permission to enact policies people don't necessarily care about, but that aren't necessarily unimportant. And any smart politician knows how to use polarization to their advantage. But in a multipartisan democracy, this becomes a much less effective lever. And this is why pushing for electoral reform is so GD important, everybody. As always, music is courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.